0: brought to you by Accenture Extended Reality. This is Field of View.
1: Hello, and welcome to Field of View. My name is Nick Rosa from Accenture.
0: And my name is Daniel Kolajani from the Academy of International Extended Reality.
1: And this, as I said, is Field of View, uh, is a podcast that is dedicated to exploring all the different corners of extended reality and the metaverse. And today we have a very uh, interesting uh, guest with us. We're going to talk about game design, we're going to talk about uh, narrative, and we're going to talk about uh, creativity in uh, the metaverse, in virtual worlds, but also in the real worlds and experiences, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is somebody whose first job out of college was in CG. Uh, This is someone uh, who has trained hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in the art of, I, I guess like there's, there's there's, so many different ways of describing it when we were talking about it, but you know, in terms of virtual production and when we talk about uh, visual effects and I, I guess how, what we'll be talking about a little bit more about in this one as well is about how we bring it to life in, in the real world now um, as well.
1: And I mean, if you think about the, the, the concept of the metaverse that is completely based on experience, uh, the storytelling factor of the metaverse is going to be absolutely important and key to everything that is going to be developed by brands, uh, by companies for their products and for their experiences. So it's a great pleasure having with us uh, Todd Lechman. Hi, Todd. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Very well. Thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure.
0: So, uh, Tad, one of the things that we like to do, just to kick things off, is to ask people their superhero origin story.
1: Yes. Um, uh, and, and get a second. Shall we first say, uh, uh, Tad, apart from the superhero story, uh, would you start, first of all, saying, what do you do right now? What's your current occupation? And then we can go back to your and then I want to know and, the superhero uh, story. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. It'll make more sense if you know where I ended up. Exactly.
2: exactly. <laughs> um. I'm currently a lecturer at University of California in Santa Cruz uh, up in the redwoods of Northern California. I basically live and work on Endor. Um, And I teach in uh, two different game design programs that we have at UC Santa Cruz, um, both on the art side and on the engineering side as well. So I'm working with students who are interested in working in video games, tabletop games. Uh, working in production, virtual production of all kinds and any kind of basically interactive entertainment. They're all, and some of whom are also interested in
1: doing kind of academic study of those areas as well. Fantastic. And and Todd, you have a very unique origin story that comes directly from your roots and from your heritage. Uh, Would you like to talk us about a little bit of that? Um, Yeah. So I think the most
2: kind of, important thing is I was, you know, I'm a person who was raised by artists. Both my parents were, were artists, and my dad in particular was an architectural designer um, who worked through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, mostly in Southern California, but also all around the world. But his specialty was working on themed restaurants, themed attractions, and themed shopping villages so at a time when that really wasn't a thing um, he actually designed one of the first polynesian themed restaurants um, in the united states in the 60s this place called pieces of eight in uh in la area that was a south uh pacific themed pirate restaurant um i just found this on my uh coffee table this is a a gold doubloon that they actually made for the opening (laughs) of the restaurant so there was a tangible thing i think this speaks I think to the level of detail that my dad was interested in when he was designing a space for people to come to and visit and be someplace else. And so that was what was around me when I was growing up as a kid is, and my dad worked at home. So there was always a drafting table in a room, usually like this that had the best light in the house. And he was designing places that either didn't exist or places that people couldn't normally get to that would be a place they could visit near their home. Um, And it, I think the older I get and the more time I spend working in creative fields, the more I realize that that actually
1: was setting me on a trajectory, whether I knew it or not. Absolutely, and, and obviously the fact that you lived into this kind of immersive worlds had a huge impact on your personal development and cultural development, I suppose. It did, and you know, just something as simple as something that California
2: families do all the time, like going to Disneyland, Going to Disneyland with my dad was, uh, it was a classroom. I learned about um, where detail is important and where it's not important and how you can use force perspective to make buildings and objects look larger than they are and look where things are being cheated and where you can and can't cheat on things. And it was really interesting. And I got a whole, there's a whole nother level of meaning that I got as well as just enjoying going to Disneyland. Um, But it definitely, I had... I had some insight into how these things were created that most people I think didn't growing up. And, and just the knowledge that there it's possible to get a job making things like this um, was also something that I think had a huge effect on me early.
0: I think there's a lot of people out there that they, when, especially when growing up uh, you kind of get to a point in life where you realize, wait, I can actually do that for a job, (laughs) Um, which is crazy.
2: Yeah. uh, And I think for me too, remember, you know, I'm, I'm, of an age, I'm a Gen Xer, so when I grew up, there was no internet, but there were you know movie magazines and special effects magazines that I would get religiously um, and see pictures of people making models of X-Wings and TIE fighters and seeing them filmed on the blue screen, but having almost no information about how those things were done. But um, you know, my dad also as part of being an architectural designer was making architectural models at home too. And so model making was another part of my life Uh, growing up as well and when I had that exact realization that oh wait there's a you can like get paid to make models for movies like I want to do that so when I graduated from high school um, I had uh, been so busy working at a movie theater and working at a video store and making models and hanging out my friends I'd actually forgotten to apply to any colleges (laughs) and I didn't know what I wanted to do after I graduated from high school and I was talking to my dad and he said, well, you know, we've got a family friend, Jim Dow, who worked for me at the architecture firm when he first out of, got out of college, he owes us a favor. I know he does something with special effects and movies and making models. Why don't you give him a call and get his advice? And so th- thank goodness there was no internet because I would have looked him up and I would have been too intimidated to call. Um, <laughs> but I called Jim up and told him that I was interested in making models for special effects. Where should I go to college? And he said, well, you can't, there really is no way to go to college to learn how to do this. Um, He said, but if you have a third of the talent that your dad has, um, you should come out and apprentice with me at my model shop in Southern California. At this point, I lived on the East coast of of the United States. Um, And he said, just come, come work for me. I'm going to be frank with you. It's going to be a lot of like sweeping up the shop and mowing the lawn. And it's going to be a lot of grunt work, but we'll teach you how to be a model maker, we'll teach you how to make sets. And that's what I did. And what I didn't realize at that point, again, thankfully, cause it would have scared me was that Jim Dow um, built the robots for silent running. Uh, he had made spaceship models I'd seen in a hundred different movies. He helped build the uh, enterprise for Star Trek, the motion picture. He had an Emmy award for doing the miniatures for Cosmos with Carl Sagan. Um, all things that I knew and loved, and um, he was kind enough to kind of share his knowledge about doing those things. He worked on close encounters, making miniature landscapes for for close encounters for UFOs to fly over. Um, and so that was my that was my first job out of high school was apprenticing to a model maker, and I did that for about a, a year. It was also my introduction to learning how to do creative work in an apprenticeship. Um, and I very much had a kind of a karate kid experience also of like, why am I learning how to uh, replace the decking on a sailboat on the weekend for you? Like, what does this got to do with making movies? And of course I realized it had everything to do with keeping your tools sharp, learning how to do things methodically, paying attention to detail. Was like, oh, okay. I actually was, I was learning things that I
1: will use later. I just didn't know it at the time. Walks on, walks off correct <laughs> <laughs> and sad you have been also involved in other interesting thing throughout those years i mean i'm talking between 2008 and 1995 mm. that, that 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 frame period uh yeah. be- before your experience Abroad, of course, yes. that we're going to talk about later. So you've been involved in many projects around there in Lucasfilm, and you also, you know, be, been peeking on the Lucas uh, Lucasfilm games department, and you were curious to understand what they were doing. So can you tell us a little bit all the projects that you've been working on?
2: Yeah. So I was lucky enough, um, as we mentioned at the at the top of the show, that my first job out of college was working for Industrial Light and Magic, um, and I started in '95. Um, And at that point, it was that kind of the beginning of the real inflection point between practical effects and CG effects. And actually, my first job was doing computer support. I was uh, a Macintosh system administrator. That was my hobby. Computers were my hobby in college. That's how I earned my money in college, was doing tech support on campus. And that that combined with the fact that I had been a model maker before and I had understood film, uh, got me my job at ILM. And very quickly, um, I moved out of that technical role and into a more creative role and more artistic role, um, helping form a small kind of skunk works group called the Rebel Mac unit that was using off-the-shelf software and Mac hardware to do 3D visual effects work, hard surface spaceships and things that were um, well-suited to that kind of technology and that kind of hardware that was a lot less expensive. Um, and encouraged artists who were more generalists who could do their own modeling texturing animation and i learned on the job i had lots of art experience but i had no 3d computer graphics experience and again in an apprentice role i learned from all these uh, you know pioneers of computer graphics how to take what i knew how to do with plastic and balsa wood and paint and learn how to make cG models that still had to do the same thing. They had to integrate with live action. They had to look like they were, they belonged in a live action movie and not draw attention to themselves, but learn how to do it with new tools that behaved in in some cases very differently. So um, our first uh, couple of uh, projects that that group worked on, we worked on Star Trek First Contact and we created uh, CG spaceships, uh, CG version of the Enterprise. That got to share the screen with miniatures, which was also really interesting to kind of make that transition from practical CG. That was kind of a another pivot moment. We worked on the Men in Black, the first Men in Black movie, um, and a lot of we did a lot of commercials and other stuff as well. But it was a really fertile ground to kind of push the edge, try things. Where and you know ILM, a lot of uh, times you might hear people say that George Lucas considers. ILM to be the film school that he runs um, for a whole generation of folks, and it really was. Uh, there was so much experimentation going on, so much sharing of knowledge, and so much, um, you know, so much respect for someone who could come up with a clever solution to a problem um, rather than an expensive solution to a problem. Like it was a great place to learn about um, how to how to do computer graphics and how to integrate them into uh, other live action.
1: Um, and you've been pioneering basically the the whole technology and techniques that right now are used at scale globally in order to do the, the whole movie industry and the TV shows that we are seeing right now. Everything that, from the Mandalorian to the the Marvel movies is all coming from there, right? It's really true. And it's really satisfying to see some of these things that used to be, you
2: know, like we were looked at often incredulously, like, well, you're going to do what, like what, you can't do that with after effects and Photoshop. Like you need to get this really expensive proprietary software. It's like, no, we can actually, we can here, look, and you're right. It is the way that production is done now. And I've been lucky enough. I got to kind of help, uh, push things forward in two different departments because after I, uh, left the rebel Mac unit at ILM, I moved to the art department next door. Um, And started working first as a concept artist and as a researcher and as an art director's assistant, but very quickly realized that um, there was this new thing that people were doing called pre-visualization and making 3D animatics, um, that there was one artist who I think the first one I saw, David DeZoritz was working on the first Mission Impossible movie and was doing a 3D version of the channel taste chase with the train going through the channel in the helicopter with the moat, the crudest 3d models you've ever seen. But he was helping Brian De Palma work out where the camera was going to be and helping our visual effects teams figure out how they were going to film their miniatures, how, and, but he had the whole sequence kind of roughed in. He had storyboards that he was making into 3d scenes and, I got really excited about that. And David, coincidentally, David got the call to go up to start doing previs for the prequels at the ranch at Skywalker ranch with George Lucas and his team, which left a vacancy in the art department for an animatic artist. I said, Hey, I know how to use all these tools. I can just, you should just let me do this. <laughs> and, and they did. And within You know, two years, I went from being the sole pre artist to being the pre supervisor with a team that expanded and contracted. But at some point, we had 11 folks doing um, 3D planning for shots and basically making animated storyboards um, in a way that, again, is commonplace today. Like, everybody does that. That's how you figure out, you know, complicated parts of your movie. But it was a new thing. Animatics weren't new. Um, many people have seen like hand-drawn animatics from Empire Strikes Back, planning out the Snow Walkers. Uh, Many people have seen the awesome uh, action figure version of the speeder bike chase from Return of the Jedi. That was an animatic used for planning that scene. We were doing this, again, doing the same work that had been done at ILM for years, but using new tools to do it and trying to leverage those tools. So that was another thing that um, I was lucky enough to help kind of pioneer. Um, I do tend to be places where things are starting <laughs> and helping them get off the ground and helping them get get off the and, ground and made. And,
1: and this also happened in 2008 when you moved to Singapore. It did.
2: <laughs> so, um, and it's another place where things that don't feel like they're connected that I do in my life suddenly come together and become uh, an important, like, oh, of course you're gonna do that next, Tad. That makes perfect sense. Because I had left ILM to teach full-time at university. Um, as we mentioned, I've been teaching for a long time off and on too. So I have had lots, of, lots and lots of students come through my classes. And I had been doing that for a few years. And Lucasfilm called me and said, hey, Tad, uh, so you may have heard we have a studio that's opening in Singapore. They're working on the Clone Wars right now, but we want to do more than that. We know that you've been teaching at university. We want to put together an apprenticeship program. That will take um, folks straight out of university who may have been studying 3D animation um, and may have a basic understanding, but they're not ready to even work on something um, like the Clone Wars. We want to put together uh, basically a little school inside the Singapore studio. Um, You know our culture. You know Lucasfilm. You know ILM. You know how how all this stuff works, and you and also you're you know. You're a known quantity, like we've worked with you for a long time. Would you consider coming back to run a training department in Singapore, but primarily to set up the Jedi Masters program? Also, it was handy that it had a really cool name. I've also worked in teams that had really cool names before. So the Jedi Masters program was our apprenticeship program. So yeah, we uh, my family uh, moved to Singapore from Savannah, Georgia, and uh, got our big uh, Malamute dog and uh, brought him with us to the Southeast Asia. And it was a fantastic experience. And again, it was helping set up a brand new studio. Um, the goal was to, to grow the art staff by almost double um, to start doing two episodes of Clone Wars at a time and also grow the visual effects team that was there. And there was a LucasArts team there. And you mentioned that my kind of peeking through the curtains at, at, at what was happening at LucasArts, when I worked at ILM, LucasArts, during the heyday of their adventure game um, development, was literally right next to ILM. And they were also starting to do their first 3D games as well. So X-Wing and Dark Forces were also happening. And um, I have no shame about walking up to somebody who's doing something cool and asking them questions about what they're doing. And again, the culture of Lucasfilm is sharing knowledge and helping other people so I got a really a, like an early look at game development, and it definitely stuck with me. So knowing that the opportunity in Singapore was not only TV animation, which I was also interested in, but also game development was going to be a component of it as well. That was another thing that was really, really interesting to me. And I got the chance to work really closely with um, big chunks of the LucasArts team that was working on things like um, uh, Force Unleashed, Force Unleashed 2, but also the team that was making the iPhone version of Monkey Island. So also a callback to the LucasArts games that I really was interested in when I was a young person playing video games. So, Tad, I mean,
0: it seems that like, um, you know, you've been, you, you've witnessed and actually been through lots of different points of innovation, right? I mean, you know, you've you've gone from 3D, like sorry, from traditional modeling through to 3D modeling. Uh, then you've gone through to actually building up brand new parts of teams that never really existed before in in brand new countries. I'm interested to know then, I guess, what were some of the the most challenging innovations that you had to actually push through or actually had to enable, I mean, during that time, because yeah, it it seems pretty interesting.
2: I mean, there's always this, it feels like there's always this point at which um, you realize that you're trying to create something from scratch that already exists that, you're expending energy trying to develop something that you think is a new technique, and then realizing that, actually, if you talk to other people who've already gone here before, there probably is a way to implement those things. Um, and I think a good example is my experience and lots of other folks' experience um, in the early aughts, moving from visual effects and 3D animation for film and for um, for commercials into game development. and. Uh, thinking that they were just going to take all of their knowledge that they had from making films and it would apply one-to-one to games and realizing like, Oh wait, games is very different. Um, I should probably learn from the people who've been developing games for years about how to te- how to tell interactive stories, um, how to build geometry that will render at 30 to 60 frames a second, not one frame every 10 to 24 hours in the cases of some of the movies that we were working on at ilm i think that the record when i left was still the live action 101 dalmatians movie there was a shot that i think had like 70 cg puppies in it that took over 24 hours a frame to render um so
0: getting and that getting okay oh, I was going to say that that didn't even include what we do today with three D rendering, where we have all individual hairs of the the animal tracked and and uh, rendered.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's um and I mentioned cheating, um coming up with clever solutions to things and and kind of what we sometimes call benevolent cheating in production. Um, I was at ILM for uh, the Perfect Storm, and there's a lot of ocean simulation happening in that movie, but there was no water simulation tool at that point. And so Habib Zargapur and some of the other artists just used cloth simulation to make the ocean surface and it worked fine. <laughs> there, was, there was basically no liquid simulation going on at all. Um, but I think what we're talking about now is also this other thing that's been following me around, I think through all the transitions to different different roles and different technologies and different pipelines and different use cases is this tension between fidelity and efficiency, um, making sure that things look as good as they can, but they still will perform. Obviously the really important thinking about AR and VR um, and making sure that you're squeezing all of the performance you can out of the hardware that you have, out of the software that you have um, to get performance that will deliver, even at the baseline, the baseline, rec- uh, the baseline requirements for VR are still pretty high. Um, but it's something that I'm used to, even though we were rendering offline, you still didn't want those renders to take a long time. You wanted to have that feedback loop as an artist to make a change, render it out, see what it looks like see it in context sometimes, composite it into the film just to see what it looks like and then come back and make a change. So we were always chasing efficiency, um, even in offline rendering. And that mindset of, okay, how, what's the least amount of geometry I can use in this scene to make it look good? What's the smallest texture I can use to make it look good? Which also, by the way, goes back to practical model making. Why am I building the back of this miniature building? We're never going to see it in the movie. Um, Same thing with doing previs and animatics, we were helping figure out what the camera would see so that we knew the bare minimum that we needed to build all of these, like, it took me probably three or four steps down this path to realize like, oh, I keep, we keep having the same problems over and over again, and we keep, um, uh, instead of thinking about it as we're doing the same thing over and over again. It's like, oh, no, actually, we can get better at this as we apply what we learned from the previous technology, from the previous use case. We can actually um, start further down the road than we might have um, if we hadn't had that prior experience as well.
1: So I guess that right now we can um, go to the core of the conversation, uh, which is basically uh, storytelling and game Mm -hmm. mechanics applied to immersive worlds. you are doing a lot of work and a lot of research in the field. Would you like to take us through, first of all, the kind of activities that you're doing there at the University of Santa Cruz to explore game design, game mechanics, and storytelling in immersive technologies? And then some of the observation from your side of how those are going to be some of the imperatives of you know, the actual design of the, all the metaverse experiences mm-hmm. that's out there are being built right now.
2: Yeah, I work with um, students, like I said, who have a broad range of interests in game development. Um, and also, you know, there's another missing piece of my of my origin story that we haven't discussed, which is the fact that I actually went to UC Santa Cruz as an undergraduate where I got my literature degree. So my, my formal training that I've, the only formal training I ever had is literary analysis um, and analyzing stories. <laughs> so... Um, it's definitely that's another thing that another draw to film and games was the storytelling aspect as well and i was lucky enough too at ilm to spend some some time working in the story department of an animated feature working with really talented storyboard artists and story artists many of whom are now working at places like pixar and disney um and that is another common thread nick for me is that storytelling and and through things like those lucas arts adventure games Um, understanding the power of interactive stories and that identification with a character on the screen because you have some control over them um, has been something that's been really interesting to explore with my students. And for me, um, you know, oftentimes I will take on teaching duties in areas that I don't have deep expertise in because I want to learn about it and teaching it is the best way to learn about it. So I've learned a lot about uh, interactive storytelling as well, and like you said, it's a great opportunity to do research that I might not otherwise have the time or resources to do. And um, you know, as as you know, I'm also spend a lot of time working with uh, playing and and designing tabletop role playing games, which is a uh, shared collaborative storytelling exercise, um, which is yet another way to think about storytelling in a non-linear way that is very much related to the ways that we tell stories um, through games and other interactive media.
1: And, and you mentioned some of the research that you are doing there at the University of Santa Cruz. Would you like to tell us a little bit some of the most interesting one that you've be running and uh, a, some of the top one that's are close to your heart that were super interesting and also obviously close to the kind of topic that we're covering right now, which is immersive.
2: Yeah, well, a lot of the teaching that I do is uh, project-based. So a lot of it is helping students uh, you know, realize ideas that they have for games and helping them get some hands-on experience making games, um, as well as, um, again, kind of helping them break down why different types of games, why different kinds of interna- interactive narratives, why they work, how to make them work better, but also practical applications for them that they may not have thought about So a project that uh, you and I actually had the chance to work on last summer was um, taking a group of students who've been learning about game development and the process of making games uh, for a couple of years in our program, are reaching their senior year, and are looking, again, for some more practical ways to apply what they've learned and kind of synthesize everything into real projects. Often, we find ourselves in the place of trying to replicate like a real a quote real game project for them to work on over the course of a short period of time, and I always am thinking back to learning on the job, my own apprenticeship um, opportunities, and you know the times I've been teaching within a studio and had the advantage of actually having real projects for um, interns to work on, for new artists to work on, and so we um, I collaborated with with you and our friend. Bob Gerard, who I worked with at Riot Games, to come up with um, a a senior class in which I could work with my students to help them um, work through actual uh, problems in coming up with training and learning uh, materials and experiences in VR, specifically in VR, um, working with stakeholders inside Accenture, working through the training groups to find folks who had... Training that they needed to make and deliver, um, but needed some help figuring out like how to do that in VR. Was VR even the right tool for that and how to make the best use of that? And having those students get a real problem to solve, have to interact with a real client, having weekly meetings with stakeholders, showing their progress, doing research, but not research for some assignment that Tad gave them, but research because they have a real thing they need to solve. Um, was really, really rewarding. Um, I think not just for the students, it was rewarding for me and hopefully it was rewarding for our stakeholders um, on the other side
1: as well. Absolutely. And I'd love to do more of that. And, and in proportion to your students, I guess that's uh, the kind of students that want to work uh, on topics like, for example, building a VR application for consumers and not just for gaming Mm-hmm. Is uh, is is rising right now because of all this metaverse craze that is happening in terms of you know the the buzzword that is going around. Correct, and I think
2: sometimes it's just exposing students to other opportunities they that they may not have thought about. You know, most of them come in very focused on I want to work for a AAA studio or I want to start my own indie studio. Um, but the more guest speakers we have, the more folks we. Um, other kinds of work that we expose them to. And in this case, help them kind of really think deeply about the more they realize that there are other uses for this super powerful, like it's, it's also something that we have to talk about with our students too. And they're very interested in, which is like, these are behavior modification tools that we're using to make games that there's a downside to in some ways, if you're not thinking about it and talking to our students about kind of ethical behavior as well. Um, but giving them some insight into what a powerful tool this can be for learning, um, for training, for remote collaboration, um, for team building, for getting to know the other people that you're going to work with, especially now, you know, we taught a VR class with these students that was completely remote. Like normally we have a really nice VR lab on campus that they can use and really high-end equipment. And in this case, it was like, actually, we're going to think about it from the standpoint of what the content is without, and I wound up being nice because they didn't get distracted by the technology. They could think about it kind of from a different, from a yeah. different place. And I think it really, really helped.
0: So Tad, there's, there's something that's really been interesting in me and something that I'd like to be able to touch on. And this is something that we, we had a chance to briefly speak about once, but it, it was, it was this idea that your, your background is heavily in, in, in CGI, heavily in, in that kind of world of, of 3D. The idea now is is that I guess there's this, there's this kind of concept that, you know, when using special effects, you know, we're often or not, we're, we're changing or modifying or augmenting a environment, a real life environment to enhance it or change it. So yeah. I'm interested to hear from your perspective of, of, I guess, how that experience and how that world applies for you in in the world of augmented reality in, in particular,
2: yeah, it's really fascinating. There's a definitely a direct line between visual effects for film and thinking about AR. One of the the challenges for visual effects is always um, matching the existing plate, and um, so which would be the the photographed background that you're going to put the effects onto. Well, that is the same. The same problem you have in AR. And it's usually the same things that are going to um, either make or break that combination of added material to the existing material. Where's the light coming from? What's the light situation like? Does the camera movement match in 3D as well as what's happening in the real world so that the things that are getting added are snapping where they need to be, and they're moving as you would expect them to be? Is the scale correct? Is the perspective match? Does the lens match on your three D scene as it does in the, the whatever cameras being used to record it, or that it's getting passed through? Um, and these are hard enough to do. Again, not in real time. These are hard enough to do. Um, and and it really does take uh, a combination of an artistic eye and a technological savvy to make those things work. And I love the idea of trying to make all those things still work in real time and to match an environment, by the way, that you're preparing for, that you as the creator of the experience, you will never see that place ahead of the time that your material is getting added to it. I don't know what your living room looks like. I don't know what your backyard looks like. And yet I have to build an experience for which you're going to be the final author of. And it has to learn and adapt and um, be able to do things, again, that, that take a lot of time and effort in the past to do for film, like doing HDR light probes of a set or a location so that we can match that lighting accurately in 3D. So taking 360 degree um, photographs with multiple exposures to get a high dynamic range image that we can then use software to reverse engineer where are the lights, what color are the lights, what intensity are the lights. Um, it's a lot of the stuff that, again, is important um, for things like the Mandalorian to make sure that that, in that case, it's a projected background, but make sure all the lighting matches um, what's happening on the set to where they captured or what they're rendering to match what's happening in that volume. Um, to be able to do that now in real time, to have sensors in a camera or in a headset that can do that kind of measurement multiple times a second to make sure that those things fit in, because um, people notice if it's wrong. People notice if it's wrong in a movie. They absolutely notice if it's wrong, you know, in their house. <laughs> um, and so, being able to do that is a huge challenge. And you know, I'm I'm also someone who's really interested when I watch, you know, American football games or tennis matches on TV, where they're mapping diagrams and graphics to the field to tell. A story about what's happening in that particular sporting event that kind of camera tracking is hard and it's flawless um it looks as if someone has painted something on the field and that's all happening in real time and again that's a lot of the same the same problem but also the same technology that's going to get applied or is already
0: being applied to how, ar how long do you think i mean so from what i'm hearing from you here is that the worlds of of kind of traditional cgi and augmented reality they're starting to collide <laughs> uh in, in in ways we never could have imagined um h- how how long do you think it would be before for example um you know you're, you're able to get the same level of of detail or i guess the same level of of um quality that you would from having to re- painstakingly render every single frame and every single yeah. kind of Physics, I mean, because because you know there's things that we can do today that, like you said, that we, we weren't ever able to do.
2: It's I think it's closer than it's ever been. And it's already happening. I mean, ILMX lab was built on exactly this idea, which is we're really good at doing this for movies. We also have a video game <laughs> division that's really good at doing this real time. You know, a lot of the work that was done on um, Force Unleashed and Force Unleashed 2 was trying to marry the technology and the techniques that ILM was using to what LucasArts was doing, and to great effect, but it was, it was hard back then because there was a mismatch between the technology. Now those mismatches are, are coming apart, so Lab has a little bit easier job. Um, but mostly right now focused on VR, not so much on AR yet. Weta Digital likewise took real assets from the Hobbit movies and made a really cool VR experience where you got to interact with Smog the Dragon, um, starting with assets built for the movie. It is that, but that next challenging step is the most challenging, which is, you know, putting, putting the child from the Mandalorian on my table and allowing me to interact with them. Humans are pattern seeking machines. And if the, the child's lighting doesn't match what's happening next to it on the table, exactly. Um, We'll notice immediately.
0: Um, The the real question is here as well, I guess, is that could we ever, I guess, live in a world where all visual effects for movies and TV shows is done in real time? Yes, and that's that's
2: also happening right now as well. So big, big chunks of the latest Matrix movie were all done um, with Unreal running in real time. Um, And I think, uh, again speaking as someone who's been a visual effects artist before too, that ability to get that feedback loop, when you make a change to something and seeing it, having that turned to zero, (laughs) having it turned to like, I can move a light and I see it's, I see the effect in real time. Now virtual production is becoming more like real production. Um, It's more like I'm on a set moving a light and I can see through the camera exactly what that change is going to be. Um, What, We find in digital production though, is that the faster and easier it is to make visual effects, the more demands are put on those visual effects by the projects that we're working on. So everything still winds up taking the same amount of time. But um, more specifically to your point, I think we'll continue to see that same bleed through of tools and technology um, feeding back on one another from film experiences from making um, film and, and, and increasingly TV shows Feeding into how games are made um, and VR and AR experiences are made, and likewise, continuing to see uh, techniques, tools, and uh, the ways that we can think about problems from games feeding back into um, kind of traditional linear narratives as well.
1: And Ted, I just wanted to uh, ask you some question about the the, the the go back to the you know the conversation about storytelling and, yeah. and leaving a little bit the world of special effects aside. Yeah, um, there are some conversations right now about the fact that the metaverse obviously needs to be filled with people, but mm-hmm. obviously you need to get those people to arrive, and you need to allow. The, the awareness of the metaverse worlds uh, to, to, to be high enough to get enough people to fill the room, right? But nobody wants to be in an empty room, okay? Right. So uh, uh, there are some conversations and there are a lot of discussions about the, uh, the fact that most of those properties will probably require very soon to have non-playing characters to mm. be there in order to allow the users to feel in a a, a, a room that is not empty. And uh, uh, the role of the narrative and the, the scripts and the conversations and the dialogues that obviously these kind of chatbots will need to have with with, with with users that will arrive at the metaverse will have to be high enough and good enough and complex enough in order to allow an, a natural interaction and the feeling of presence, uh, even if you know you, you kind of know and perceive that you're talking with a a virtual character but at the end of the yeah. day you feel engaged yeah. what are the from your point of view the kind of uh, uh you know uh, north star that these people that are designing those experiences should follow in terms of narrative and in terms of mechanics of interaction for this this kind of worlds um i think it's again i think it's interesting that that
2: the model that we might want to think about and follow um is again something that already exists that we're that isn't technological at all, which is things like we see, um, in experiences like the Star Wars experience at Disneyland that have actors that have live actors. Um, I was also a big fan of the Star Trek experience that used to be in Las Vegas that employed lots of actors dressed up as Starfleet officers and Klingons. And it was a real interactive experience because you could ask them anything and they would be able to respond. They probably had a nice list of pre-scripted responses that they could draw from, but because it was a human being, they could immediately adjust what their performance was and what their conversation was with you based on what's happening around. Uh, I think that, you know, in an ideal world of a metaverse, there would be um, non-player characters, AI-driven characters that would respond to you in a way that was very hard to... um, separate from having a real actor, but we also have the ability to hire real actors to portray those uh, roles in real time. Uh, Neil Stevenson wrote a book called Diamond Age. Uh, Neil Stevenson's the person who coined the phrase metaphors. And in Diamond Age, um, he imagines an entire class of actors who do nothing but do interactive acting um, from their homes (laughs) Um, with motion capture rigs Um, because they can do things that AI is just never going to be able to do. And I think some combination of very clever, very um, probably machine learning trained uh, AI characters and some real time, real actors uh, at the same time, kind of filling in the gaps, I think will be imperative. And obviously interacting with other users slash players um, who are taking on those roles as part of their enjoyment of the experience um, is another way to kind of uh, scale that a little bit. Um, and it's now now we're getting very close to talking about role playing games and tabletop role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons because that's exactly the experience. Um, you're you're creating a story with other friends who are portraying roles in real time. Sometimes you're discovering the story and the characters together. Um, with a loose framework of where you're going, but really taking, taking the problem of game design, which is you have no control over what the player does with it at the end of the day, taking that to the extreme of like, oh, also you may not be the complete author of this world that it's taking place in and the narrative that they're experiencing.
1: Um, and what, I, I saw a similar framework by a company uh, called Leela. That is a real-time multi-user adventure network mm-hmm. that allows the uberization of the non-playing characters for actors, and and funny enough, the platform has basically been launched in the middle of the pandemic in 2020. Oh wow! When when the the the, the theaters and obviously the, the the movie sets were were closed because of the pandemic. Yeah. So it's called L I L A Lila. LILA. Uh, I think it is a Spanish platform. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't remember exactly, but uh, I mean, what you're saying makes total sense and and could really allow a lot of people to 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 perform and to you know earn a living and creating this kind of uh, yeah uh, the, 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 the supply and demand uh, economy of of uh, non-playing characters in in the metaverse.
2: I yeah, I think it's a really um, it's a great opportunity for lots of people, but also the bonus is you know, based on the quality of the actors, by the way, we have now trained a whole generation of people to be performers on camera and to interact with people in real time while streaming. So we've been training folks to do something basically like this. Um, it reminds me, you just remind me too of an experience I had speaking of Disneyland, one of the greatest pieces of interaction with a, with a synthetic character I've ever seen was there's a section. I don't know if it's still there at Disneyland where, There's a projection of the sea turtle crush from Finding Nemo. And it's a real-time animated CG character that's as if he's in a tank in front of you. And there's a small audience of people. And there's an actor in the other part of the room with a camera. And they're in real-time puppeteering that turtle. And it is interacting. And to watch kids and adults when this turtle comes up to the glass and says, oh, I really like your sunglasses. Where did you get that? Um, oh, I see you're a fan of, you know, insert sports team name. And to have a real time conversation with a fantastic character, um, that again used to be uh, a trick to even have work in real time, you know, in a one to one setting. That's
1: not hard to do now remotely. And, and I suppose that allows also the suspension of the, uh, the of, this uh, belief, uh, yeah. sorry, uh, of of the you know the the reality plane and and uh, and and the creation of this magic of talking with a, a fictional character because when you are, for example, in live action situation like the Star Wars Land or even the mm-hmm. Secret Cinema because it, it's basically the similar kind of mechanics, yeah, uh, you have actors and sometimes you can be embarrassed because obviously it is an actor instead with a, a virtual avatar in a, a virtual avatar in between. You don't have that kind of social awkwardness of talking with somebody in real life that you know that is performing. That's right. That somebody actually could be a completely synthetic character that you don't know that is performing or not. But obviously is a, a puppeteered by somebody else that is in real life.
0: Or Correct. you combine it with artificial intelligence or, or machine learning in, in some cases and, and it can do it itself. Yeah, yeah but right.
1: what we what we were saying before, and I believe that what Todd was saying is that the kind of complexity that you can achieve with uh, real humans that can do this kind of work is still, you know, hundreds of miles ahead of, of <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> more interactive and more flexible and obviously more believable. Sure. Yeah, I
0: mean, yeah, is, the flexibility, yeah. I think, is the, the key part. I mean, Tad, I mean looking into the future here a little bit um, and, and uh, probably be a nice round off to a few of the discussions that we've had here, given your experience with literally training people, teaching people, what are the skill sets that you envision need to be trained for people to create the next metaverse, or the metaverse?
2: Yeah. Um, again, it's kind of foundational things. It's how does storytelling work? How do people engage with characters? Uh, visual storytelling for artists. You still need to know how lighting and color work. You still need to know um, how to guide the eye through a scene. Um, But again, in a slightly different way, um, you no longer have control over the camera. So you need to find other ways to guide people's attention throughout a space. Again, it's it's the work of a theme park designer. Um, But I think the thing that comes up over and over and over again with all of my students is... Um, broad interest and broad, broad exposure to all sorts of things, different types of literature, different types of art, different types of movies, and different types of games. A lot of times, folks who are interested in a specific area, like game design, um, will be folk. They're there because that is something they're obsessed with, and is something that they only kind of they only play games, and maybe they only play a very narrow band of games. They only play like JRPGs. They only play first-person shooters. Um, the more that you can broaden your experience, uh, the more useful you will be in making different, um, especially collaborative creative endeavors. Uh, We had such a weird mix of people again at ILM because you couldn't go to school to learn how to do CG and visual effects. We all came from other different weird places. So I have a literature degree. I had one person on my team with a philosophy degree. Um, We had historians, we had fine artists, we had sculptors but everybody brought something important to the table and everyone brought a different perspective to the table. And I think we can then now expand that to something that I learned working overseas and working in Singapore, as well as working with my students over these years too, is the more different, um, not just backgrounds and interests that you can have from people on your team, but the more different kinds of people you can have on your team. um, Always, I I will say this definitively, always, um, have a positive effect on the thing that you're making because you've got more different points of view working on a problem. Uh, you've got more different points of view to better represent the possible people who might be um, using experience, use, perform, um, enjoying this experience in the future, whether it's a game, whether it's a movie. Um, the more folks who can put themselves in the place of the different, the global. A marketplace of people who might be interacting with us, the better off you're going to be.
0: We've so much happening in this space and, and lots of things have to happen to, to allow us to achieve a true metaverse or a true, you know, environment like this. I mean, are we going to experience a, a talent shortage here? Are we going to experience uh, challenges in, in training these people and bringing these people on board?
2: We may indeed, because there's a lot of stuff to make, uh, a, Again, hopefully procedural generation will help us, but someone needs to train and design that procedural um, uh, software to you know, make sets, make objects, make props, make characters. Um, some of that hopefully will be um, user generated content. A lot of people get a lot of enjoyment out of making things and sharing them. So if we have tools that will allow them to do that in a way that lets them get plugged into the metaverse in different ways, that will help as well. But again, you need to learn how to do those things. We can always get better about making um, tools more accessible to more people and easier to use to make uh, objects. I think one of, the, one of the side benefits of VR has been uh, a whole exploration of uh, art creation tools in VR that actually are, uh, for some people, a much easier way for them to make things, to sculpt in 3D by actually doing it in a headset um, but there there may well be a shortage of folks in different areas to help populate all of these spaces. It's hard enough to get people to make environments and characters and assets for all just the AAA games that need to get made. <laughs> yeah, Any, I mean, like, this, is,
0: this is super interesting to us because, like, even like us, I mean, we're working and partnering with uh, theaters, for example, and, you know, designing. Uh, programs that would actually help traditional uh, playwriters utilize XR and, and the technology there and, and understand how their skill set actually combines with these other areas as well, which is really interesting.
2: Yeah, no, I think, th- and there's lots of, like theater is a really great example of another area that has unexpected crossovers, especially with uh, interactive VR and AR. They know how to light things so they're pleasing in the real world. Uh, they know how to design sets so that they look good from a distance. Um, and they're also theatrical designers are very good at efficiency. They know how much makeup is needed for, for what kind of characters and what to exaggerate and what not to exaggerate the exact same skills as someone trying to design a character. That's going to be the size of a quarter on your screen in league of legends. It's the same as someone designing a costume for a theater that you might see at the size of a quarter, um, from your vantage point. So I think there's lots of crossover like that. And that's probably a good opportunity to not just leverage those folks directly from other areas in the arts and technology, but have them help train the next generation as well to, again, synthesize solutions that we've already come up with from other art forms and help Get us one step further ahead, quicker by using the experience that they have and combining it with the new things that we're learning how to do along the way.
1: I wanted to ask you something that is related to the kind of uh, um, introduction that consumers will have with brands uh, in uh, metaverse experiences, uh, especially the ones that are related to uh, you know theatrical experiences or you know experiential branded experiences. Uh, the 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 user will note go anymore to a virtual store or a virtual shop just to buy an item, those users will go there in order to l- leave a certain emotion and mm-hmm. eventually leave the, 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 the brand values in real life uh, and, 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 and come away with something that is much more than just a single digital product or a, an NFT link to a real life product. Um, What are the piece of advice that you can give eventually to companies and brands that would like to build something like that to create memorable experiences? I think um, the main thing to remember
2: is don't reproduce things that already exist in the real world. Like if you're going to make a virtual Disney store, don't make it look just like the Disney store that's at the mall 10 miles from my house. Take advantage of the ability to make what would normally be a boring experience in something interesting and immersive. Um, Again, back to the Star Trek experience, that that ride slash experience dropped you off at Quark's Bar, which was a complete reproduction of Quark's Bar from Deep Space Nine with Klingons walking around with themed drinks. That was so much fun um, and it was an experience that the group I was with, we took memories as well as artifacts away with us. Um, and I think that's the the potential as well for um, cr- introducing people to your brand and what your brand looks like in this new place where we can do more than we could in a physical place. Or, um, you know, you may not have the opportunity to go to a highly produced version of uh, actual location that we've built around our brand, but it's only in Tokyo. It's only in New York. But oh wait, well, you can get a taste of that. Oh, plus we can do these other things that we can't do in the real place in Tokyo. So I think it's don't ever don't you know it's it's uh, uh I don't think it's still called skeuomorphism. Yeah, uh, Reproducing metaphors in a digital space that exists in the real world, like file folders and a garbage can, um, just to help people get over that transition. I don't think we need that step for AR and VR. Um, I think you can go go straight to like, oh, I'm I'm riding a dragon to this place instead of like, no, you're gonna get on a tram and go from point A to point B. Like, I think people are ready for um, a little bit more interesting uh, use of the possibility space.
1: Fantastic. Ted, I think that we um, are on top of the hour. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, this my has pleasure. been so, in, so insightful. We didn't have a chance to talk about your role-playing and Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop yep. fashion. I mean, maybe we, we should a record whole, another episode for that. whole for the other next, thread isn't? of storytelling.
2: I would love to, because I think it's, it's relevant and it's certainly having a moment right now. And I think part of it is this hunger for storytelling, but also hunger for kind of participating in storytelling as well. Mm.
1: Would you like to give your social, um, I don't know, Twitter or LinkedIn and so on, so people maybe that wants to follow you can, can find you on the internet? Yeah, um, if you, yeah. If you're interested in this stuff, follow me on Twitter,
2: because I repost and post things often around these same areas of discussion. It's just my, like my name, Tad Lechman, at Tad Leckman on uh, Twitter. I'm very boring. I'm basically Tad Lechman everywhere. Um, and I'm easy enough to find on LinkedIn as well. Um, but Twitter is probably the best place to, to, to hear what I think and things, see things that I'm interested in. I think you might be interested in too.
1: Fantastic, Ted. And thank you so much, everybody, for following us. Uh, As usual, uh, please, if you like this video, like and subscribe so you're not going to miss any kind of uh, notifications and videos that we're going to post in the future. You can find us on Spotify, on YouTube, on Apple Music and all the the, the different platforms for uh, uh, podcasting. And uh, uh, Dan, anything else that you wanted to add to this podcast in this episode?
0: I was just going to say, I think every single episode that I, I participate in here, I learn something new. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I really hope that those listening, those watching also uh, find have a chance to learn something new. So if you did learn something new, make sure to, to tweet us, tweet Tad, tweet you know, let us know about it. And also Please. let us know who you want us to talk to and speak to. Uh, you know because this this is all about the industry this is all about you and the journey that people have within uh, this space Um, so you know that's that's a big part of it for me
1: so if you want to be part of this podcast and you want to be the next guest that we're going to interview just get in touch and we'll keep in touch with you
0: great well thank you very much for watching and we'll see you next time
1: thank you bye bye through accessible insights, a solid network of support, and recognizing
2: truly outstanding achievements near or far. Big or small, we're in this together. AIXR.